Father in heaven, we thank you for that reminder for the children and for us of um, our Lord Jesus, who, although the, the richest person in the universe in one sense, and became poor for us, although the, the strongest person in the universe died a cursed death on a cross for us. As we reflect on these verses um, this morning, might we glimpse more of the way that you work and the kind of God that you are? Might you give us ears to hear what it is you're saying to us? And where we struggle with some of these things, where our pride can get in the way, um, would you soften us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come along with me and let me take you on a walk through Corinth, this ancient city where we've been spending time for the last 12 weeks or so. Um, visiting Corinth in Paul's day will have been very much like visiting a number of cities in our day, a number of global cities. Um, foundation, foundationally, Corinth boasted in not one but two harbours, which meant as a city it had grown very wealthy. And so whatever your love, as you wander around Corinth, you will certainly find something to scratch your itches and bring some sort of superficial satisfaction. Maybe, you're, maybe you love highbrow culture. So maybe you'll find your way in the 15,000-seater theatre on the outskirts of town, picking up a performance there. Maybe you're of a more religious ilk. And so, with a plethora of gods and goddesses on offer, numerous temples and cults, that were available, whether it be the growing cult of Isis and their ecstatic spiritual experiences, or indeed the, the centerpiece, of, centerpiece of Corinthian spirituality, the Temple of Aphrodite, apparently served by a thousand temple prostitutes, which incidentally gave Corinth a reputation of being particularly immoral and promiscuous. Maybe sport is your thing. So maybe you would enjoy the um, Isthmian Games, a biennial competition that celebrates um, athletic and musical disciplines. And when Paul visits Corinth in Acts 18, staying with them, as we've heard, for a year and a half, it was the largest Greek city. In simple terms, Corinth was worldly and powerful and impressive. Corinth sounds very much like any number of our cities. Corinth was proud. And in many ways, as we've seen through this letter, Corinth, the city, has invaded Corinth, the church. Do you remember, Paul has been dragged down into the mud to defend himself against these phony, self-appointed apostles. We even heard the damning indictment last week that, that ultimately they are doing the work of Satan. Chapter 11, verse 13, 14, 15. Not just something that we can agree on, something secondary. But ultimately what they are doing is the work of Satan in the church. And so Paul has started to boast. He's begun to use their tactics. And yet he will boast, but not in the kind of things that you would expect him to boast in. He boasts in the mess of his ministry life. Do you remember he was boasting in shipwrecks and sufferings and shame with this kind of anti-CV resume type thing. Laughable it was. And it concluded, do you remember, with him being lowered from a wall in Damascus in a fish basket as he ran for his life. And yet this week, for a moment, he will change tack. He describes with a, a level of elusiveness 
some kind of ecstatic spiritual experience that, that someone went through, it seems. I should say from the outset, I think it's him. This description of this man is autobiographical. Paul is being forced, in a sense, to speak um, about his own experiences, to boast as they do, and so he does. Otherwise, how do we, does he know, verse 4, that this person was caught up in inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell? How would he know that unless it was him? Or verse 6, he says, it is he who is speaking the truth. Or verse 7, he was given the thorn, he says. It's as if he tantalizingly opens the door ajar for us and he says, well, I could talk to you about these things. I could. And if you want me to blow my own trumpet, if you need me to let you in on these things, I could, but, but actually I won't. I'm not prepared to do that. I'm not allowed to do that. And yet what can we glean from Paul's revelation from the Lord here? First point if you're a note taker. It's worth saying, as I've already alluded to, it's almost certainly a relevant thing to the city of Corinth because of their, their culture of spirituality and spiritual experiences. That kind of stuff brought kudos in Corinth. I've mentioned the cult of Isis already, but also if you know 1 Corinthians, do you remember that section, chapter 12 to 14, the spiritual gifts that they had got hung up on and, and wrong? Paul has to write to them and to correct their wrong thinking, to straighten out stuff. And yet from what he tells us in verse 1 to 7, we'll try and unpick a few things. There are a number of things that we don't actually know about Paul's experience. We don't actually know really what it was. It's described in, in a slightly confusing way. Verse 3, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows. Is this in the body? Is this out of the body? Is it a, in a kind of imagined psychological thing or a, a real thing in some sense, physical? What does it mean to be, verse 2, caught up to the third heaven? Or verse 4, caught up in paradise? We, we just don't really know. But there are a number of things we do know. We know, firstly, it was special. Perhaps it's a bit of an understatement. It was memorable, it was vivid, it was important. The, the revelation word used in verse 1 and in verse 7 at, at either end of this section is that, that unveiling word, the same word as in the book of Revelation at the end of our Bibles. It's, it's the curtains being pulled back for a moment. It's clarity being seen for a moment. And clearly these, these experiences have stuck with Paul. They are special, they are vivid. He could boast in them, but he won't. Also, it's striking, secondly, that it's personal. Paul is aware this is a private thing. This is something between him and the Lord. It's, it's sacred. It's, it's not for public testimony. It's only mentioned here in all of Paul's letters. He's, he's kind of bashful about it. Just imagine it in our day, and you can see the publishers lining up trying to get a three-part book deal and a signature from Paul. My trip to paradise from Paul the Apostle. No doubt there would be all the various associated social media campaigns, marketing, book signings, and all that kind of stuff, but not for Paul. No, this is private. Not everything we experience of Christ necessarily needs to be shared with others. 
These experiences here have a specific purpose, and that purpose was a personal one, and that is okay. Notice as well that it's very unusual. Verse 2. It was 14 years ago, says Paul. Things like this can and they do happen, but isn't it striking that it was a very, very rare thing for Paul? Paul, an apostle. Paul, someone who... Who, who met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. But it was 14 years ago when this happened. Perhaps there's a right balance needed from the Christian church. So often, as is the case, we get it wrong at each extreme. Things swing. Maybe for some, we need to be more open to these things, more open to what God can do in us, to acknowledge the reality of, of spiritual experiences, perhaps. But, but not to get hung up on them. Again, in our day, it seems there's almost an an industry based around running after, chasing after what God is doing, chasing after spiritual experiences like this. There are books out there. Almost as if proudly we should expect them. And it becomes more and more about them and, and actually less and less about God, a relationship with him. Paul mentions it just the once, and it was 14 years ago. But the other striking thing is that with this experience, there is the danger of pride, verse 5 to 7. Maybe that's why they're so uncommon. Maybe God knows our sinful hearts can get easily puffed up. And so verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. For if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Again, Paul is elusive and bashful. Firstly, he speaks about himself in the third person. Secondly, he refrains from speaking about this experience because he wants to avoid others thinking more of him than they ought to. But then thirdly, verse 7, in order to keep him from conceit and pride, he is given a thorn in his flesh. Paul Paul didn't want people to, to follow him or listen to him because of this, because of this experience. In one sense, I guess it's unverifiable. You can't prove it. And if he starts talking about these things, then that potentially opens the floodgates to all kinds of crazies competing with Paul. Paul, you you only went to the third heaven. Ah, I went to the fifth. But he's not prepared to speak about these things. And so to keep him from becoming conceited, Paul's thorn is allowed by the Lord. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And PhD after PhD have been written on this thorn in the flesh. Much conjecture, much guesswork, much imagination. And there's lots we could say, but let's just explore for this morning briefly... Five questions to think about this thorn. I'll click it through, and then I'll get rid of them. 
Five questions that I want us to explore briefly. Number one is who sent it. Number two is what is it. Number three is what does he mean by the flesh. Number four is why does he have it. And number five, we'll land the plane. What does it mean for us? Firstly, who sent it? I think this is important. It's a distinction that we need to make. Because Paul describes it, verse 7, as a messenger of Satan to torment me. Actually, an angel of Satan in one sense, a messenger of Satan. And yet, verse 8, three times he pleads with the Lord to take it away from him. That is, it seems to be from Satan, a, a messenger, but sovereignly allowed by the Lord. And it's that idea we get in the Bible again and again and again. We, we struggle to get to grips with it, but we need to trust him with it. God, in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, allows suffering and evil and hardship. But he's not culpable for them. And yet he's able to weave those things into his plans and his purposes. Have a think of Joseph. Do you remember the Joseph narrative at the end of Genesis? You end up in chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Did his brothers do wrong? Yes. Were they culpable for that wrong? Yes. Indeed, they intended to harm him, but God intended it for good weaving their wrongdoing into his plans and purposes. Think of the pattern in the book of Job. God allows Satan to tempt and to test Job. But still God is sovereign. Satan is not free to do as he pleases. In one sense, his, his power is limited. He is on a leash. God is still sovereign. Of course, you see it most clearly in the climax of the Bible where Jesus dies on the cross. The cross was an evil action that, that sinful people perpetrated, doing what they wanted to do, held account, accountable for what they wanted to do. And you can point the finger at all kinds of people as to who was doing wrong at that point. In the story of Easter, think of, think of the high priest, think of the religious establishment, think of the crowds, think of Herod, think of the soldiers, think of Judas. All implicated, all doing what they wanted to do. And yet in God's sovereignty, it was his plan. And from that place then, he brought incredible good. Unimaginable suffering as his son takes on flesh, dies in the place of his sinful people. But then extraordinary, mind-blowing good as he's raised again and we receive forgiveness and cleansing and redemption. And we are united to him by faith. We are able to know the God who made us. And this idea of God's sovereignty and yet our culpability, the reality of suffering, the reality of evil, for some is a big philosophical question. But for some of us it will be a very personal and profound question. Why, what, why God, am I in this situation now? Why has this thing happened to me at this place and at this time? So firstly, who sent it? Well, God is sovereign. Secondly, what is it? What is this thorn? And isn't that the question? 
there are numerous different theories and speculations as to what this thorn might be. Um, let me try and give you three broad categories as we just begin to explore some of it. Um, firstly, some say maybe it was a physical illness or an ailment. You can look elsewhere, particularly in Galatians, there are hints of Paul's bodily suffering there, Galatians 4 verse 13. Maybe he had bad eyes, people say. Get that in chapter 4 and chapter 6 of Galatians. And maybe it's physical because of the catalogue of calamities that we heard about last week. Maybe just these things seem to follow Paul around. He sees them as coming from Satan. Some say maybe it's not a physical thing, but a mental health thing. Maybe it's depression. So earlier in the letter we saw, he said that he had received the sentence of death. Or he said they are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Do you remember? Perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. So maybe it is some kind of an illness or bodily suffering. There's one broad category, one idea. The second one is that people sometimes think it was a particular temptation or a besetting sin of Paul. Like in the garden at the beginning, when Satan tempted Eve, so at times Satan tempts Paul and he falls Obviously, some commentators will think this is sexual temptation, but I think probably that says more about them and their preconceptions and their love or lack thereof for Paul. So maybe it's sin. Or thirdly, the broad category is that of an individual or individuals who are deliberately seeking to undo Paul's work as they oppose the gospel. Picking up, do you remember the work of Satan last week and of um, 11, 13, 14, 15. These super apostles who masquerade as angels of light. So maybe here the angel messenger of Satan is a someone rather than a something. Someone traveling around maybe after Paul seeking to unpick his hard labor and his teaching. If you want to know what I think, come and chat to me afterwards. But in one sense, it doesn't actually matter that much. Because there are two things we really do know. The first thing is that throughout the Bible, thorns are a bad thing. Yeah, whether the thorns and thistles from Genesis 3 from the curse, whether the enemy inhabitants of the promised land, Numbers 33, God says, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Or even the crown of thorns that Jesus wore on the cross. The thorn imagery through the scriptures is always a negative thing. But secondly, the thing that really matters is that the Lord uses this thorn, whatever it might be, for good. And the good is to stop Paul from being conceited, to keep Paul from pride. Thirdly, what is the flesh? And this might sound a bit technical, uh, but I think it's quite helpful to un unpick it slightly apart. When Paul uses the word flesh um, in the New Testament, it can mean different things. I think there are two particular meanings here that help us. One commentator put it like this. He said, um, the word flesh is a beautifully imprecise word in Paul's theology. A beautifully imprecise word in Paul's theology. I think there's a deliberate ambiguity here as to what he means by flesh. So firstly, there's flesh as in our physical bodies. Look down, and that is your flesh. 
That is you, your mortal existence, who you are in one sense in terms of your, your body that you live in. There's the flesh that you can hold. But secondly, if, if you know any of Paul's letters, you will know sometimes he uses this flesh word to mean a kind of selfish self. The sinful, worldly, proud self. It's the daily putting to death of our sinful nature, of our flesh. It's the flesh that we battle as believers each day. And I think Paul has got a kind of double meaning going on here, a double entendre. Paul's thorn in his physical flesh from Satan, whatever that might be, causes him pain and suffering. There is a literal thorn of some sort in his flesh, his body, his mortal existence. And he prays that it would be removed. It's horrid, whether it's, um, whether it's a physical kind of illness, whether it's a person, whether it's sin, whatever it might be, he prays that it would go three times. But what's important is that God uses that thorn to be a thorn in his sinful flesh, in his selfish self which causes him to be humble, which pops his pride, which weakens his fleshly boasting, which means he is dependent upon the Lord. Does that make sense? So it's kind of both and. The thorn in our physical flesh is a pop to his pride. Fourthly, why does he have it? Because the important thing, of course, is actually the effect on his ministry. It doesn't matter so much on the specifics of what the thorn is or even the specifics of what the flesh is. The point is, the thorn is vital for the Apostle Paul. Because the thorn is God saying to him, you are more useful to me with suffering than without it. The thorn means you keep looking to me and you know that my grace is enough. You know that I am enough, says the Lord. God repurposes Satan's plans here. There is a divine design in this for his glory, for Paul's good. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's as if God says to himself or to Paul, how can I keep you looking to me? How can I help you to keep being humble, Paul? I know. I will use that. And I expect you're already there. But what does it mean for us? In practice, what does it mean? Well, clearly Paul's thorn is unique. Paul's situation is unique. But I take it the principle remains. Perhaps particularly in the West, we have a daily tendency towards pride and self-sufficiency. And yet God longs for us to be humble. Not because he's needy in some sense, or he needs to be needed, but because he knows how he made us. And he knows that we were made to know him, and in all his goodness and his generosity and kindness. And yet we, as Sarah started the service, we constantly go somewhere else. Or we're tempted elsewhere, our hearts wander. 
And so sometimes he, he, he repurposes suffering to keep reminding us that we weren't meant to go it alone, that we were meant to look to him, that he is enough. And we love comfort. And so we find this really hard. But it means God knows better than we do. And so sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers and he leaves us with discomfort. Because sometimes it's better for us to learn to trust him and to look to him and to keep trusting him and to keep looking to him day by day by day rather than to be healed or cured or relieved and drift back into pride and self-sufficiency again. And yet so often when we suffer, we think something's gone wrong. And, and in a sense we have. In a sense it has gone wrong. It's part of this broken and cursed world. But in another sense... The suffering, whatever that may be, can be repurposed, that we look to him. And yet we love comfort. And we're proud. Actually, as the passage goes on, he broadens it out in verse 10, and it's less about a thorn and more about all manner of experiences that we might go through. Things that highlight his weakness and his insufficiency because they highlight the Lord's strength. And in a room like this, I know that that idea will work its way out in all kinds of ways. I'm aware that you might not want to hear this, that you might struggle with these verses. They may well bring pain and frustration and hurt or confusion or sadness. It's a little bit like picking off the scab. Because we may well long for situations or things in our lives to be sorted. Maybe it is a personal situation or circumstance. Maybe it's an ongoing illness, a frailty, a hardship, whether physical or mental. It, it just won't leave us alone and we long that it would be gone. Maybe it's a relational difficulty. Maybe it's a longing for, for a spouse. Maybe it's a longing for children. Maybe it's a longing for a different spouse or for different children. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be restored or reconciled. And that shadow just hangs over us. Maybe it's an individual that needs to be removed from our lives. Or maybe it works at the corporate level. Not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church family. You will know if you were here last week some of the difficulties we've had in kind of local community relations this last month or so with the building project. Or maybe even just the building project more generally over the last six years or so, there seem to have been an awful lot of thorns and thistles that have slowed things down, that have challenged us at different stages. And yet I wonder whether they've kept us looking to him. Because the danger can be, we, we, we look at the thorns and we pull our hair out and we wallow in self-pity. And those things make us moan and they bring us low. 
Or even in the midst of them, we, we, we turn in on ourselves and away from God and we try and sort the thing ourselves and we rely on ourselves. And yet the point is, the point of the thorn is that they're meant to make us look to him, to turn towards him, the one who is sufficient, the one who is good. Which means Paul can even delight in his weaknesses, verse 10. Sounds crazy. He delights in his weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Why? Because he sees that Jesus is enough. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I wanted to kind of begin to finish by introducing you to a really helpful book. Um, you can Google it later or get a copy or I should have brought it with me. It's at home. Um, it's a book called uh, Genius, Grief and Grace. A Doctor Looks at Suffering and Success. Genius, Grief and Grace. A Doctor Looks at Suffering and Success. And what the author does there is not just pick up a number of ideas and thoughts from this passage, but also look back at Christians from the past and outline the way in which often silently they suffered. It looks back at various writings and ministries and biographies and autobiographies of various well-known people the Lord has used throughout history. And he analyzes them and then brings what I would call a cautious retrospective diagnosis. A cautious retrospective diagnosis. So, for example, he looks at Martin Luther, the reformer, theologian, church planter, pastor, and sees quite clearly that there seem to have been a number of various obsessive compulsive tendencies within Martin Luther that at times led to significant bouts of depression. Or, for example, he looks at John Bunyan, who seems to tend towards severe anxiety and particularly hard at various stages in his often difficult life. William Cowper had decades of depression and at 31 years old, I'm told, had his first catastrophic breakdown. Lord, Lord Shaftesbury, the 19th century social reformer, from 50 years of diary writing, you can see something of the fact that he pretty clearly seemed to be bipolar. Apparently Florence Nightingale, this is on PC, but Florence Nightingale said that he would have been in a lunatic asylum if he had not devoted himself to reforming them. And the list goes on and on and on. And it's helpful for me because where we can be tempted to kind of idolise and put these people on pedestals and put on rose-tinted spectacles at the same time, it seems they had very complicated lives. And yet it's in and through their weaknesses and their suffering and their hardships and their battles that they look to him for strength. And God uses them mightily. More recently, I was reading the article. Um, you will know um, the, you, you might know the story of someone called Joni Erickson Tarda. Um, 51 years ago, age 17, she was in a diving accident. She's been confined to a wheelchair ever since that point. And um, I was reading an article with her, um, about her, <laughs> not with her, she wasn't here. Um, and she says at the start, she hated it. She's really honest, she absolutely hated it. She said, I hated my paralysis so much, I would drive my power wheelchair into walls repeatedly, banging them until they cracked. 
Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. But then slowly over time, she begins to find an acceptance. And she says this, she says, I began to see there are more important things in life than walking and having the use of your hands. And she continues, it sounds incredible. I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. But then there was this sentence that that just jumped out as I was considering um, this sermon. It's a truth that profoundly changed her perspective forever. She says, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And Morton Road, it's there that we'll end our time together. In 2 Corinthians. In a world that can be far too easily Corinthian in the way that we live. In a church culture where we can be far too Corinthian in the way that we expect church to happen. Where we can love power and influence. We want to look impressive and remarkable. So we need to know that at times our loving Lord will use the discomfort and the frustration and the pain of this world, the thorns and the thistles, the things that he hates to accomplish what he loves, that we might look to him in humility and that we might know that he is enough. And so together with Paul, we might learn to say, not just in theory or just as a nice idea, but actually in the reality of the mess of life, in the the stuff that you're going through now, that thing, that relationship, that illness, whatever it might be, in the midst of that, we might with Paul learn to say, that is why for Christ's sake, we delight in weaknesses and in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, For when we are weak, because of Christ, then we are strong. Because, of course, we we follow a crucified saviour. We follow one who came in weakness and who died on a cross. And yet this was the Lord's plan. Through this apparent weakness, we see his strength. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord, you know the reality of our hearts. You know our pride. You know our conceit. You know the way in which we run after other things except you. And it's a dangerous prayer to pray, but we we pray that you might humble us. We pray that in the midst of the mess of life, we might not wallow in self-pity, but look to you for the grace that we need. So that with Paul, we might pray and know that when we are weak, because of Christ, then we are strong. In his precious name we pray.